Good morning. How's that? Good? Very good. Even when microphones don't work, I've been told my voice projects just a little bit. Well, a a few words before we dive into this text this morning. First, uh, those of you who were here last week and and, uh, were a part of the service, it was a privilege uh, to experience your prayer and the laying on of hands of the elders uh, when I was installed into the office of elder. And what a privilege it is for myself, for our family, to serve in this capacity with this dear flock. And so we simply wanted to express our love for the church and what an honor and a privilege we consider it to be to serve in that capacity. And we ask that you'd keep us in prayer, and we're here uh, for you and for any of your needs. And also I want to express uh, gratitude to particularly Matt Furman um, and also Zach Puller for their leadership on the worship team as well. Uh, those of you who are regulars know that it's rare that I have a chance to sit and to be with my family and, and during worship to hear your voices from down here in the, uh, the discount seats. And what a blessing that is, though, to hear the voices of the congregation. And so deeply appreciative of that. Well, we are in Mark chapter 12, continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. If you've not already turned there, you can turn to page 849 in the Bibles that are in your pews. Again, we're in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 38. We'll go through verse 44, the end of the chapter. If this is your first or second time here, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the copy in the pew in front of you is yours to keep on the sole condition that you read it. Please feel free to hang on to that and to make it yours. And as we dive into our text this morning, Jesus is in Jerusalem where he will stay until his crucifixion. So the action is rising in his tensions with the Jewish religious leaders. And this is the last incident of Jesus' public ministry. Everything after this point in Mark's gospel takes place in private with his disciples up until his crucifixion and resurrection. The Jewish ruling class, as we've seen over the last several weeks, is trying to catch him in his words, but he masterfully parries each attack. And in the text immediately previous to this, he uses the momentum of that attack against them. So immediately after telling one of the scribes that he's not far from the kingdom of God because he understands the heart of God's law, love of God and love of neighbor, it's as though he next asks them, speaking of the kingdom... Who is the king of this kingdom? And he quotes to them the most often quoted Old Testament text found in the New. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so he shows that the Messiah descended from David was in fact David's Lord, the divine son, the God-man. And the whole throng heard him gladly, we see in verse 37. Well, then the question becomes this. Just how is it that this exalted Lord, this soon-to-be-seated-at-the-right-hand-of-the-Father Messiah, how is it that he rules? What judgments does he make in his kingdom? What standard of justice does he uphold? And we get a two-part answer to that in our text this morning that we just heard read, which I'll begin to read for us again, page 849 in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes 
who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called to his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. Father, as we approach your word this morning, given to us in inspired scripture, we ask that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, I pray that you would increase, that I would decrease, that you would be honored in this time and communicate to us, help us to respond in faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, how does this king rule? By what standard does he uphold justice? And our answer is our thesis, our main point for this morning. It's simply this, that Jesus Christ, as the exalted Lord, condemns religious hypocrisy, but praises sacrificial devotion. Again, our main point summarizing this text, Jesus Christ, as the exalted Lord, condemns religious hypocrisy, but praises sacrificial devotion. And we'll simply spend the remainder of our time this morning breaking this statement apart and examining each piece. So our first point is that Jesus, as the exalted Lord, condemns religious hypocrisy. Our first point comes to us from verses 38 through 40, which we just read. Remember that Jesus has just come to Jerusalem in search of fruit. He had cursed the fig tree outside of town in the previous chapter, Mark 11, for failing to bear fruit as a sign against the people of his day that they too were failing to produce the fruit that matters, the fruit of righteous living. And now Jesus is warning of some of the rotten fruit that he finds among the religious ruling class. And he says in verse 38, beware. So danger, warning. So let's break this warning, this sober warning, into its component parts. And if you're one who likes to compare Scripture with Scripture, you should note that parallel accounts of this speech are given in Matthew 23 and in Luke chapter 20 as well, with a bit more detail. But Luke is very straight and to the point, and so let's look at First, who is the subject of this warning? It's the scribes. These were teachers and expounders of Old Testament law. Luke calls them lawyers. There's a lawyer joke in there somewhere. I won't touch that, though. But Matthew has Jesus beginning with these words in his account in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3. He says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. So we're not talking about arch heretics in that sense, that they don't believe in the religious orthodox faith. These are 
the religious conservatives of their day, standing for truth in the public square. They're to be commended and recognized for that, Jesus in effect says. Their problem is not what they preach, it's that they fail to practice what they preach. And so the subject is the scribes, and the accusation comes to us in six parts. There's six charges that Jesus lays at their feet in Mark's accounting of this discourse. And Jesus condemns them for several things. We'll group it into two headings. First, their pomp, and second, their pretense. Consider their pomp. They like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, verse 38. In short, they love the feeling of being the big man on campus. And traditionally, these law teachers wore white linen robes with fringes that reached down to the ground. This was their status symbol. Some branches of the church today are noted for their traditional clerical vestments, their garments that, that give them a certain status. There's a bit of a running joke inside of our church that you can tell who's preaching on a given Sunday by who shows up wearing a sport coat. So even in our church, we have our own traditions as well. But they enjoyed the feeling of being important. And that's a warning for us. They loved greetings in the marketplaces. So they would be addressed rabbi, father, even master. Can you imagine if someone addressed you as master, what that would do to your ego? And they liked that feeling. They liked the feeling of being someone. That feeling is a drug, especially for those engaged in any form of ministry. They liked the best seats in the synagogues. Now, in the traditional synagogue setup, there would be a set of seats closest to the ark or to the chest in which the scrolls of the law were stored, facing outward to the congregation. It would be as though we had people sitting in these seats on stage. They wanted to be seen in front of everyone, sitting in the important seats, virtue signaling about their piety. Look how holy I am. And at feasts, they enjoyed having the place of honor at feasts. In verse 39, because as often happens, you could tell who was most important by the arrangement of the seating and who was where at the table. John Gill, the Baptist, English Baptist theologian, recounts the story of a Pharisee from about a hundred years before the time of Christ who was sitting with one of the Hasmonean kings at the time and with his wife and took it upon himself to sit between the king and the queen. And they said, what are you doing? And he says, and he quotes a text of scripture and he says, well, the the wise will sit with kings. He thought his learning made him as important as literal royalty. These folks bought their own press. They believed that they were something. And that's not all that they're condemned for. They're also condemned, secondly, for their pretense. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, they were nonprofit workers, we might say, in today's parlance. They weren't supposed to be paid in the traditional sense for their work. So many of them relied on donors. They relied on wealthy patrons. Jesus himself, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we learned that several of his patrons were wealthy women. And so the scribes, though, they were gaming this system. Either they were legalistically, in their teaching, guilting people into giving more and more to them in their itinerant ministries, or, just as likely, if not more, they were squatting 
in these wealthy widow patron homes for weeks or months at a time, taking advantage of the hospitality that they were shown as ministers of God. And to cover up their greed and their vice, they made long prayers. The problem is not with the length, it's with the motive. Rather than heed Ecclesiastes 5, 2, where Solomon says, when you're in the presence of God, let your words be few. Be afraid to say too much to God. This is a holy God. He is listening. But rather than having that reverence, they piled on these empty, pious phrases so that everyone, including God, knew how much they mattered and how spiritual they were. Jesus, earlier in his ministry, in Matthew 6, 5, had said, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And he proceeds to tell his disciples that they should pray in secret and they'll be rewarded by the Father who sees in secret. In Luke chapter 18, he tells the the parable of the Pharisee and of the publican. And the Pharisee stands there by himself, Luke 18, 11, and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. But if you know the parable, what does the tax collector do? He stands off to the side. He won't even look up to heaven, and he's beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went home justified. Not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. So in light of that, Jesus teaches here, verse 40, they, the scribes, the religious hypocrites, will receive the greater condemnation. If you're one who reads the King James translation, they will receive the greater damnation. This is serious. This is sobering. Jesus, as the exalted Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father, when he comes into his kingdom, which he's about to do through his death, resurrection, and ascension, holds them to a higher standard, and they'll be condemned to the fires of hell because of their hypocrisy. He will judge them more harshly. Unless we think of these scribes and Pharisees as sort of cartoonish villains, totally unlike us, let's consider... Brothers and sisters, to what extent we fall prey to some of this same pride? Because don't we know how tempting it is to want to be seen and respected and applauded for our service in the church and invited to all of the social functions? If that's what drives us to serve, to minister, Jesus says, beware, and the warning is for us. Perhaps we're not anything like these religious elites. Perhaps we are more at risk of following such teachers. After all, he's warning those who would follow the scribes. Maybe we're impressed by credentials. Maybe we're impressed by those who have command of language. We buy their books. We subscribe to their podcasts, their shows. We think, we know so-and-so. So-and-so would never mislead me. But we don't know the men We don't know their true motives. All we know is a public persona. And Paul warned of such false teachers. He said, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 3.6. We are to beware of preachers and teachers who promise prosperity, 
who don't talk about sin, who don't talk about repentance or the judgment to come, but they do manage to do quite a bit of fundraising off of weak and impressionable widows. Jesus would have us to avoid them and to warn others who are trapped by such teachers. So he condemns the scribes thoroughly as religious hypocrites. But then he sat down and he watched. And let's see what happens next in verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he proceeds to teach them. Truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing into the offering box. For they all offered out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. And so our second point this morning is that Jesus praises sacrificial devotion. Yes, he condemns religious hypocrisy, but he praises sacrificial devotion. So he's sitting here in the court dedicated to the women, the court of the women, where both men and women could go. And, of course, that's where the treasury is put, necessity being the mother of invention. And there he sees many rich people putting in large sums in verse 41. And then he sees not just a woman, but a widow. And we're left to wonder, is this one of the widows whose house has been devoured by the scribes? It's a potential connection. And she drops in two lepta, two mites into the box, which together, it says in the English Standard Version, were worth a penny. They were worth one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. Depending on what you get paid each and every day, that might vary. One-sixty-fourth of a day's wage. A penny is a good translation. In today's cash, maybe about six cents is what she put in, based on the average worker's daily wages. And Jesus calls to his disciples, come here, boys, see that? And then he opens his mouth and he makes this prophetic announcement because he uses this formula. He says, amen, truly, verily. Elsewhere in scripture, he says that twice. Amen, amen, truly, truly, verily, verily. Here he has one amen, truly. So this is him speaking authoritatively. I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And that ought to bother us. More. What do you mean more, Jesus? In what way is this actually more? The answer is twofold. First, it's more in proportion. And second, it's more in spirit. She gave more in proportion to her needs. She didn't merely tithe 10% off the top. She gave 100%. We're left to infer that she gave her last two coins that she had to live off of. See, it's easy to give when you have excess. It doesn't hurt as much to scrape a bit off the top. Her gift hurt. She gave more in proportion to her means. And second, she gave more in spirit. See, her motive was not the pretense of the scribes to appear pious. Her motive was worship. Now, the scribes, they gave as though God needed them. They were like those that 
God condemns in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 20, and in Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15, both of them very similar passages where God, in effect, says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't need you. I don't need your offerings. I don't need the blood of bulls and goats. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Even if he were in need, he wouldn't tell us. He doesn't need our gold or our silver. God is, here's a word for you, assay. God is assay. He is of himself. He is completely self-sufficient. He is the I am. He depends on no one or nothing outside of himself to exist. He is all that he needs. He is entirely complete within himself. The idea that we add something to him, that we impress him with our devotion, is heretical. So instead, he says in Psalm 50, those who make thanksgiving, gratitude, their offering, those are the ones of whom he approves. He says, I want your heart, your gratitude, your love, your worship, not just your money. The widow seems to have understood that. The the scribes don't seem to have understood that. So Jesus looks on her gift and he has regard for her offering, which is really something, isn't it? when you consider where she's donating to. I wouldn't have wanted to see the IRS Form 990 for the temple at the time. This is the same religious system that he just condemned. She's giving to support this same temple system. And yet Jesus regards the gift. Even though that same temple, look at Matthew chapter 13, excuse me, Mark 13 He comes out of the temple, verse 1, his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what beautiful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There's not one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus, as exalted Lord, is about to pour out judgment on this temple. And that's what Mark 13 is about. He's about to destroy this system and replace it with the new covenant system that we enjoy here today on the Lord's Day. But he has regard for her gift, not because she gave it to the house of the Lord, but because she gave it to the Lord of the house. It's an important distinction. She did so out of a heart of love and obedience. In 1859, at the age of 19, Hudson Taylor, the English missionary who would go on to found China Inland Mission, knew already at that age that he was called to be a missionary. And he was intentionally scraping by in life on low wages sleeping on a mat on the ground in order to condition himself for the rigors of missionary life. And so he had to move to receive medical training. That was to be his platform as a missionary. So he relocated to a slum called Drainside. How do you like that? Where are you from? I'm from Drainside. So it's a poor, dour, noisy neighborhood named for the murky tide that would carry the garbage away that piled up between rows of cottages. So drunkenness was common. Sickness was common. And when Taylor was not on duty as a medical assistant, he was busy open-air preaching or engaged in mercy ministry. So one day, a drainside man approached Taylor and begged him to come pray for his dying wife. He had asked the local priest to pray, and he couldn't afford that priest's fee to come and pray for his dying wife. So Taylor follows the man to his house, They make it to the woman's bedroom, and there he sees the whole family, wife included, and they're in starvation. And Taylor realizes with the one last half-crown coin in his pocket, he could solve all of their problems. 
But Taylor himself has been living off of meager portions of rice and oats already and didn't feel as though he could part with his last remaining resource. And his supervisor often forgot to pay his salary. And Taylor, who was committed to stretching his faith muscles in his missionary preparation, had already resolved not to bring up the issue of his salary with his employer. He wanted to trust God to remind his employer to actually cut his paycheck. So, Hudson Taylor prayed for the family. And it was a rather empty prayer. And he felt awful afterwards. And the husband turns to him and says, you see what a terrible state we're in. Sir, if you can help us, for God's sake, do. And then in what Taylor felt like was the most agonizing crisis of faith in his life as he's turning around this coin in his sweaty hand in his pocket, he pulls it out. He reveals the half crown. Immediately he feels relieved. He solves their problems. They're able to buy food. Taylor went to bed completely penniless, broke, but he had peace. He had the peace that he didn't have when he was holding on to his resources. And do you know what happened the next morning? He awoke to a chance, anonymous delivery of an envelope containing a half sovereign, which is worth five times the value of the coin with which he parted. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Matthew 6, 21. And just a word about giving. In God's law, under the old covenant, his people were commanded three different tithes, one to the temple system, one to the festivals, and one to the poor. And to fail to bring the full tithe, the full 10% of one's increase, was Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, to rob God of his due. In the New Testament, the command to give a tenth is not explicitly renewed. We are told that our giving should be sacrificial, Hebrews 13, 16. Generous, Romans 12, 8, 1 Timothy 6, 18. In proportion to our ability, Acts 2, 35. We should give to the poor, Galatians 2, 10. To the widow and orphan, James 1, 27. To missionaries, 3 John 6, to pastors, 1 Timothy 4, 17 and 18, and to needy fellow believers as a congregation when we gather on the Lord's Day, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And most of all, we're told that God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7. And there is a promise that comes with all of these precepts as well. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Amen? Jesus praises sacrificial devotion. And so as we come to a close, I want to begin, as always, as is our custom, by addressing the unbeliever or the person who's here who may not be sure exactly where they stand with God and with Christ. And to an unbeliever, you may be tempted to glom on to Jesus' words where he condemns these religious hypocrites, right? You tell them, Jesus. Tell them all about their hypocrisy. My question is, what about you? Jesus is not condemning religion, but religious hypocrisy. The issue is not the use 
of religion, but the abuse of God's law, which doesn't negate the right use of God's law. See, you can't use hypocrisy as an excuse to avoid Christ because you are admitting that there is an objective moral standard. By what standard do you condemn hypocrisy? What's wrong with hypocrisy if there's no God who's sovereign over right and wrong? Where did you get your standard that said hypocrisy was wrong? Was it from a man named Jesus who condemned it all of the time? That same law that Jesus enforces as king and judge of the earth condemns us too. Because so often we are the hypocrites that make our religious offerings, not from the heart, but out of our pomp and out of our pretense. Jesus' warning, beware of greater condemnation, applies to us as well. But there is good news. See, in a world awash with religious hypocrites, there is one religious leader who actually gave all. There is one who was rich, who for our sakes became poor, that we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus Christ, the God-man, before he was exalted to the right hand of God the Father, took the form of a servant, of a slave, died under the wrath of God in the place of sinners, religious, non-religious, rich, poor, hypocritical, all of them alike. He gave God his all in an offering to save his people. And by that offering, he bought his people out of sin, death, and hell. He rose from the dead. He credits to them the riches of his righteousness now so that they can stand before God in the light of life. And then he ascended as king of the cosmos to guarantee salvation to his people. See, we bring nothing to the table. We so often, like the scribes, think that we really do contribute something. We think we're okay. We think we're rich. But Jesus says this. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me refined in the fire, gold refined in the fire, so that you can... (coughs) Excuse me so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says that in Revelation chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. So he calls to you today to repent, to turn from your pompousness, your pride, your greed, your pretense, your hypocrisy, to come to him with the empty hands of faith, not thinking that just by putting the right amount in the offering plate, I'm going to please God but simply to receive his true riches for our rags, his grace for our shame, his righteousness for our sin. Make today the day that you would come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And to the believer, first an encouragement, and I think I can speak on behalf of the whole pastoral elder team when I say, Though we don't get into the weeds of finances too much, we know enough to know that this is a generous, generous church that gives sacrificially, that gives when it hurts. And Jesus sees that, just as he saw the widow's offering. Jesus notices. He's not a miser standing over us, ready to audit us over the first accounting error. He sees, he knows your labor of love. He knows the sacrifice. Press on. Continue in those good works. Do not lose heart. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
take heart. And in addition to that, let me issue a challenge. Let's ask ourselves, is the spirit of our devotion to the Lord sacrificial as it was for this widow? This does have to do with our material wealth. And if you're convicted this morning about giving or not giving, seek the Lord. Search the scriptures and ask the Lord to grow you in this grace of generosity for his kingdom. Not to lie in any pocket for the advance of the gospel. This challenge also goes beyond our wealth. 2 Samuel 24 is a passage in which David has sinned greatly and the whole nation is cast into judgment as a result. And there's a plague that kills 70,000 people. And the angel of the Lord is standing with his sword drawn between heaven and earth, suspended in the sky. And then David is told, right there where the angel of the Lord is, build an altar, make an offering right there. So he goes, he finds it happens to be on the property of Ornan the Jebusite. And Ornan says to him, take the bull, take, take my goats, take, take these animals, offer them, do what you got to do for the Lord. He's on board. And David says this, I will not offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He refused to worship God in a way that didn't have some skin in the game for him, in a way that didn't cost him. Beloved, what has your love for the Lord cost you recently? If we are to be the type of church that sends out a missionary that sends out Ricardo and Keisha as church planters and sends several families of the church with them to start another church, if we're to be a church on mission, sending our best, it will cost us. It will cost us money. It will even cost us some of the precious fellowship that we enjoy every single week in and week out. That's my kids. Ignore them. They're fine. Brothers and sisters, our Lord is worth it. Amen. Is he not worth it? Isn't the lamb worthy to receive that for which he died? Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you empty-handed. You gave all for us. Though you were rich, you became poor so that we might become rich towards God in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, make us a sacrificially devoted church to you. Be pleased with our offerings. Let them come from a heart of worship. Take our lives, use them for your kingdom. Help us not to be hypocrites, but to be sincere, devoted to you because of your great worth. In Jesus' name, amen.